And our study this morning is in 2 Samuel chapter 23. The context for this is that David is near the end of his life. In fact, if you look at the first verse of um, chapter 23, you see that it says these are the last words of David. Well, you know if you continue to study that these aren't the actual last words of David, but it's kind of his last sermon as king. It's his last kind of major address um, before they build the temple and dedicate that. So um, David really is, is about to turn over the kingdom to Solomon uh, in 1 Kings chapter 1. So this last part of David's life has really not um, been terribly smooth. Uh, David's life was never really smooth, but in this case he had done some things that were not really uh, beneficial to the kingdom or to his spiritual walk. He had had the sin with Bathsheba, and then um, after that, there was all kinds of family crisis and turmoil. There was some sexual sin there that kind of was a result of what David had done, and um, Absalom, his son, rebelled, revolted, tried to overthrow the kingdom. He ended up, was, uh, he ended up being killed uh, against David's wishes, and then right after what happens here, David takes a census, which was his second major sin against the Lord. Uh, he did that out of his pride and just the desire to kind of accumulate the numbers and say, look at me. And God was not pleased with that, and um, that ended up being kind of a, a whole mess. So in the middle of all this stuff that's going on at the end of David's life, uh, his old enemy and Israel's old enemy, the Philistines, uh, are, are kind of out there looking for a rumble, and they're they're looking around, little skirmishes, causing problems, um, trying to bait David into a war, trying to bait Israel into a war. And that's not a coincidence based on what's going on in David's life. We find as we look through uh, Samuel, Kings, and Chronicles that almost every time the Philistines show up, almost every time there's a war or a conflict with the Philistines, it's signaling that there is a spiritual problem in Israel. And sometimes that happens in our life. Sometimes there are, there are recurring situations that are difficult. There are recurring people that come into our life and kind of cause uh, difficulty in our lives. And, and that's uh, God allowing things to happen like the Philistines continuing to show up. Because it signals to us when we see this that there is probably a need to examine our hearts. When we get into the same crisis over and over, when we get into the same situation with somebody over and over, oftentimes the Lord is saying to us, there's a problem that's going on that you're not addressing. So I'm going to keep coming back to this so you will get the message. So that's what happened with the Israelites, with the Philistines. Anytime the Philistines show up, Israel should be doing a spiritual checkup, but they don't. Usually they just see it as a military problem and then they keep going on. And that's where, when we get into these problems in life, we need to be students of our life. We need to be students of what the Holy Spirit is doing and not just ignore it and say, well, God, why did you bring that up again and start to get bitter at the Lord that we're going through the same situation. If we're going through the same situation, God's saying, wake up. Notice what's going on. Examine your own heart. So David's got this mess. The Philistines are showing up, and now um, he's kind of in this latter stage of his life and his uh, rule. And over the latter part of David's life, he 
uh, surrounded himself with some men that were very faithful and very loyal to him. And these men, the Holy Spirit designates here, it may even be at the top of uh, your, your verse in verse 8, the Holy Spirit designates these 37 men as David's mighty men. David's mighty men. Now, wouldn't you like to have that kind of distinction from the Lord? I'd like to be called the mighty man of the Lord. These guys were faithful to God. These guys were faithful to David. And several of them do some, some really incredible things uh, here in chapter 23, like killing 300 Philistines with a spear, um, doing amazing things in terms of battle. But it's one simple act that three of them do that, that I would like to focus on in our study this morning. Because few of us in life will do miraculous things, right? Few of us are going to go out and, and defend uh, the Lord to 300 people and take them on at once or, or do miracles or, or have people be healed as we walk by with our shadow. Not saying the Lord can't do that. And we shortchange the Holy Spirit if we say, well, God doesn't work that way anymore. Well, show me that in my scripture where God doesn't work that way anymore. Maybe we're just lacking in power. But many of us are not going to see miraculous, huge, amazing things like this happen in our lives. But every single one of us can be faithful. And that's what God has called us to be. And Jesus said, those who are faithful in a little for me, I will make faithful in a lot. I'll give them a lot. So it's important that we as believers, as we go about our week this week, Monday morning's going to hit, we don't really want to go back to work or go back to school, and we're kind of, uh, and then Tuesday, and then it's Wednesday already, and how is the week going so fast? Does it sound like your week? That's my week every week. How is it already Wednesday? And wait a second, it's going to be Sunday again. As we're going through life, we're called to be faithful to the Lord. One of the best ways that we can be faithful to the Lord is how we sacrifice within our relationships. Now look at what it says here in the text about how David's mighty men do that here. Start in chapter 3, 2 Samuel, look at verse 13. Then three of the 30 chief men, there are actually 37, but there were 30 main ones. Three of the 30 chief men went down and came to David in the harvest time to the cave at Adullam where the troop of the Philistines was camping in the valley of Rephaim. David was then in the stronghold, while the garrison of the Philistines was then in Bethlehem. David had a craving and said, Oh, that someone would give me water to drink from the well of Bethlehem, which is by the gate. So the three mighty men broke through the camp of the Philistines and drew water from the well of Bethlehem, which was by the gate, and took it and brought it to David. Nevertheless, David would not drink it, but poured it out to the Lord. And he said, Be it far from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Shall I drink the blood of the men who went in jeopardy of their lives? Therefore, he would not drink it. These things the three mighty men did. Now, if you go back to verse 8, you see that the mighty men are in continual conflict with the Philistines, who apparently are having some success against Israel, because it says in verses 13 and 14, that the Philistine army was camping in the valley of Rephaim. Now, anytime the Holy Spirit gives us that kind of detail, we shouldn't just blow by it. We should say, all right, where was the valley of Rephaim? Why does the Holy Spirit take a verse to tell us that the Philistines were there? 
Well, the Valley of Rephaim was on the west southwest side of Jerusalem. So if you can picture your Jerusalem map, Jerusalem's kind of right in the center, a little bit on the south side of Israel. And to the west, southwest of that, going toward the Mediterranean, was the Valley of Rephaim. And the Philistines had set up a garrison, an army garrison, in Bethlehem. Now, those are important details because it means that between Jerusalem and Bethlehem and the Valley of Rephaim's in the middle of that, that they had cut off anybody from going through. So there was no travel, there was no communication going on, because nobody's got iPhones at this point, right? So, so there's no way to get from Jerusalem to Bethlehem without going way, way around, and there certainly is no communication going on. This was also a very fertile area, which is rare in Israel. There's not a lot of area that is fertile. So this was a strategic move by the Philistines. What they're doing is they're, they're getting in a very important place between the two most important cities in the southern part of Israel, between Jerusalem and Bethlehem, and they are trying to frustrate Israel and, I believe, eventually try to draw David out. Now, the text tells us that David was in a stronghold in a cave at Adullam. Again, why do we care about that? Why is that important? Because the cave at Adullam was a place David had been before. When he was running from Saul at the first part of his reign, after he had been anointed by Samuel but wasn't king yet, he went to the cave of Adullam to hide. It was up on a hill about 13 miles away from Bethlehem. So Jerusalem's here. That's where David should be because he's king. The Philistines are believed uh, between Jerusalem and Bethlehem in the Valley of Rephaim. Bethlehem is kind of now taken over by the Philistines, and David's farther west, 13 miles in Adullam. Now, he's kind of set this up as, a, as a, a, a temporary headquarters for the battle with the Philistines. And while they're there one day, while they're, they're kind of working and planning and, and hanging out, David says something out of the desire of his heart that catches the attention of three mighty men. He says, oh, man, it's just kind of an aside. I, I, oh, man, I, I would love to have a drink from that well of Bethlehem. That, that would just taste so good. Now, a couple things are going on here. First of all, David's hometown was Bethlehem. So he had strong personal memories. He was, he was drawn to that place. The well may have even, if we want to get kind of philosophical, the well may have represented a, a, a lesser uh, easier time in life when he was a kid and was growing up and would go down to the well by the gate and would draw water and, and everything was kind of happy and people weren't trying to kill him. That, that was just an easier time. So he thinks back to Bethlehem, oh, going back home, back to my hometown. Boy, what it would be like. It's like if you didn't grow up in Racine and you go back to where you grew up and it's like, oh, there's the old places. I drove around when I was in Charlotte uh, a little bit. Uh, last couple weeks ago, and just kind of visited old places and saw, and it just brought back a lot of memories. That's what's going on here. So, oh man, that that well in Bethlehem. So there's a personal connection, and then there's a there's a, a leadership connection because this really represented failure. The Philistines had taken over the valley. The Philistines had taken over Bethlehem. David's struggling to get back to Jerusalem. Everything's kind of not right. The situation's not right. The nation's not right. And that really represents a leadership issue because he's the king. And then there's this national problem of, 
of not being able to be in these important cities. And, and what are we going to do? And how's communication going to get from Jerusalem to Bethlehem? And, and, and there's really a, a, a strategic crisis here. And then fourth, and this is more visceral, maybe David just really liked that water. As he's sitting in this dry cave, maybe he's just craving. He's just thinking about it. He's just, he's just wishing that he could go back and get some water. I don't know why. What was special about that? Well, maybe the water tasted different. But for some reason, David wants that water. Now, it's important to notice that he's not being selfish. He's not wallowing in self-pity. And he's not being passive-aggressive. Boy, I wish I had some of that water. And, and he's not doing that. This is, just, this is just something where he's going, oh, man, I wish I could have that. And he's not directing anybody to go get it. What he doesn't realize is that these three guys, look at the text, these three guys just, just decide we're going to do something nice. Hey, hey, guy, hey, come here, come here. Did you hear what David just said? Let's go get some water. Hey, hey, what are you talking about? Listen, he just said he really wishes he had some water. Why, why don't we go get that for him? And here's the problem. The well is 13 miles away. And the path to the well is full of Philistines. And, and it's going to be a huge and dangerous idea to try to go get a cup of water from that particular well. And by the way, they don't really have permission to be AWOL for eight or nine hours, even if it is to get something for him. So I asked myself, and I hope you're asking yourself, why in the world would they do this? Yeah, I didn't know it was frivolous probably even kind of bordering on maybe ridiculous. There, there's no military advantage to gain. And it wasn't like David said, hey, you three, go get me that water. This wasn't a command. It wasn't a demand. And, and there's all kinds of risk because if they get caught, they're going to be tortured. Philistines were not a nice people. So they're going to take these guys. They're going to be prisoners of the war. They're going to torture them for information. Where's David hiding out? And, and what's going on? I mean, waterboarding at this point is, is minor compared to what the Philistines are going to do to these guys to try to get some battle strategy out of them. And then after they get the strategy, they're just going to kill them. All for a glass of water. So, so they're going rogue at this point. They're, they're deciding that they're going to go get this water for David. Why? Why would they take such a chance? Well, the only reason I believe we can come up with is they cared for David. And they wanted to show him honor and appreciation by sacrificing to bring him joy. Now, that's not exactly in the guy playbook, is it? That's, that's not really how guys think. These are strong warriors. They're in a cave in the desert. They're plotting strategy. They're ready to rise their swords against the Philistines. But suddenly we get this picture, and I, and I want you to really maybe even close your eyes and picture this. Suddenly you get this picture of them talking and strategizing and then kind of sneaking out and going down the hill, looking back, hopefully nobody's seeing us, and they're on this mission to get this water from this well all the way away. It's almost comical, but it's not. What it is is powerful. Their love and their devotion for their king and their friend, listen now, is so complete that they're willing to sacrifice their time and their effort and even their safety in order to bless him. 
And let that sentence sink in because it's got spiritual implications. Their love and their devotion to their king and their friend is so complete that they're willing to sacrifice their time and their effort and their safety to bless him. Imagine if that was our mindset all the time toward our spouse. Imagine if that was the mindset all the time toward our kids or our friends or even our enemies. How would that change our personal relationships? And how much more does that principle apply in our relationship with our Savior? See, the prevailing mindset, and we've talked about this a hundred times, the prevailing mindset of our culture is narcissistic and self-indulgent. And I think it's safe to say, especially this week, that the adults in our country are not modeling encouragement. Would you say that's a safe statement this week? What's going on in the political narrative, and I'm not being political to say this, I just want to try to clarify it. What's going on in the political narrative has not been created by Donald Trump's election. That's just the, the, the convenient target that the enemy has, has exploited to introduce a new wave of selfish hostility and criticism and, and a disconcerting atmosphere uh, of hatred and division. This is not about policy. It's not about political parties. It's not about generations. It's not about ideology. Everything is spiritual. And the enemy is using what's going on in our country as a calculated enemy to escalate immoral nastiness and to try to make hate the new normal. Now, why would he do that? Because God is the very definition of love, and Christ's sacrifice is the most loving thing that God could do. So what does the enemy want? He wants hatred. He's never going to promote anything that would have to do with God. So if God's love, what is the enemy like? He likes hatred. If God's sacrifice, what is the enemy like? He likes selfishness. He's going to do the opposite of what God does every time. So just think about how powerful it would be and how countercultural it would be if we, as children of God, are sacrificial and humble and holy. Think about how powerful it would be in our nasty culture right now if we're encouraging people and loving people and showing mercy to people and forgiving people and praying for people and being unified as a body and coming together as believers and saying God loves you and Christ died for you and, and you'll never know anything like Jesus Christ. That's both our offense and our defense against the enemy's battle plan. And when we live in the presence of the Holy Spirit and the power of the Holy Spirit, we will be strong for that fight. And listen, we will be effective in our ministry. The enemy says, no, that's not going to work. You're going to have to be all PC and soft and tolerant. Nope, that's not what God tells us to do. I don't want to listen to the enemy's lies. If we stand firm for the Lord, if we stand firm for our conviction, not only will we represent Christ well, but people will come to Christ because of it. But it starts with us. It starts with us having the conviction and the commitment that these mighty men have in ministering to David. So I want to give you just a couple truths this morning. Three, three truths out of this text. Maybe write them down just so we can continue to review them. But three truths that, that I pray will really stir us to, to have a different mindset and have different actions in terms of how we sacrifice for each other. 
And then at the end, we're going to see the best response when someone sacrifices for us. And each of these has a very strong spiritual parallel in our relationship to the Lord. Okay, so truth number one out of the text, verse 15, is that it is essential, it is essential that we encourage people, especially when they're drained. It is essential that we encourage people, especially when they're drained, physically, emotionally, spiritually. Now, these men are close enough to David that they had to see and they had to sense the the toll that life had taken on him from the rebellion and loss of his son Absalom, which was so devastating to, to David, which kind of put them out here on the run in the first place, to the uprising that followed Absalom's death, to the three battles they had had in a row, mostly with the Philistines. Now David's kind of old, and he's worn down, and, and while he's still strong in his faith, how many know that, that any time you face that much personal turmoil, it starts to affect the strength of your walk? David's making some bad decisions. He's kind of weary. He's kind of not thinking right. The, the, the spiritual warfare around David had always been very strong. But now I believe the enemy's kind of ramping it up in anticipation. Look, there's going to be a change in leadership. David's always been a huge adversary. He's been a man after God's heart. Well, now he's going to die soon because the devil can watch what's going on. And Solomon's going to take over. And I, you know what? I think we got some room with Solomon. I think we can go after Solomon. He's got some weaknesses. And maybe this desire for water, and we gave all the reasons why it might have been, but maybe this desire for water is a clear indication that David's kind of tapped out, no pun intended. He's he's kind of, man, he's just sitting around the cave. Boy, you know what? It would be awesome. I wish I could go back and get that water in Bethlehem. Oh, man. That was the best. I was a kid. We used to always go down there and drink out of that. Well, I can't even get to Bethlehem right now. Philistines are in the way. My son's dead. I committed this grievous sin. And David, I believe, is just kind of worn out. When you're around people like that, when, when you're around people that are in that situation, does it make you nervous and timid? Or does it kind of compel you? Listen, I, I, I need to encourage you. Let me, let me speak some words of faith to you. Let me, let me tell you, I don't, I don't want to try to say I know exactly how you're feeling, but I've been through something similar. And can I just encourage you in the Lord? Can I pray for you? Is that how we react when we're around people who are weary? See, now we need to be strong enough in our faith and equipped so that we're victorious in our war So when we see somebody struggling, when somebody comes in into our presence and says, I'm not doing very well, instead of saying, I got nothing to give, we now can give out of the abundance of the Holy Spirit to them and come alongside them. And like Aaron and her who raised up Moses' arms in the battle, say, let me hold you up for a while. Let me strengthen you for a while. Let Let me encourage you for a while. Why don't we do that all the time? Well, one of the reasons is we may be weak ourselves. We're not in a position, or maybe we don't even have the desire to to encourage somebody else, but that's the lie of selfishness. And it leads to the second truth. Look at the second truth in verse 15. We can sacrifice and we can endure difficulty for others far more than we think. 
me say that again. We can sacrifice and we can endure difficulty for others far more than we think. Just, just think about the effort that these men go through to get a cup of water. I mean, be, be, be amazed by the simplicity of that. They're not stealing battle plans. They're not going into the headquarters as spies. They're not creating relationships for the military advantage. They're just going to get a cup of water. 13 miles one way on foot with no help, no extra protection. They're going to have to go right into and through the camp of the Philistine armies. Uh, when, they, when they go to the well, they're going to be exposed. Why are you taking from that well? Who are you? And then after they're done getting the cup of water, they got to go back through it all again. Not to mention that I have to believe they're questioning their sanity as they go. And they're wondering, what's David going to do to us when he finds out that we disappeared? And they've got to know that the next step may be their last step of freedom. Why would you do that? As one pastor I read said, these three were zealous for David's satisfaction. Do we exert that much effort and more to show love and minister to the people around us? Do we go the extra mile? Do we go the extra 13 miles to, to, to care for people, not just our loved ones, but people in the body and even people who need Christ? See, it's much easier and it's more convenient to come up with the reasons why we can't do that than to actually sacrifice and do it. And we tend to blame people whether they're not a very nice person or they don't treat me right or they've offended me in the past. And we use that as, as justification for restricting sacrifice. We can think of 20 reasons why we're too tired and too worn down and we just can't step up. But, but if someone comes along with an offer that kind of pleases us, oh, all of a sudden we got energy. Honey, can you clean out the garage today? Um, oh, honey, I'm so worn down. You just know. Hey, you want to go to Green Bay for the game? Oh, yeah. When do we get in the car? Right? We're so quick to indulge ourselves, but when it comes to trying to sacrifice to somebody else, we're hesitant. Why is that? They're, they're literally going to walk a marathon, and it makes no sense until we realize how much they cared about their friend, how much they wanted to encourage him and strengthen him, even though it seems illogical. But they see David. They see the weariness. They see him worn down. They hear his desire, and they say, you know what? This seems weird, but we got a special assignment. Let's go. What will the Lord call you and me to this week that falls into that category? What, what's God calling of us? Men, how can you bless and encourage your wife this week? By extending yourself past what's comfortable to sacrifice for her. Women, same question. How can you do that for your husband? And don't start with the, well, you don't know what they're like. Doesn't matter. Christ didn't say that when he went to the cross. And he doesn't keep bringing up my sins. He says, I've forgotten them. Kids, 
How are you going to bless and encourage your parents this week? How are you going to encourage your friends going beyond what's expected, even if there's no benefit to you? Christian, how are you going to serve the Lord and your church this week beyond what's typical? How are you going to extend yourself to somebody who's hurting or somebody who needs the gospel? I promise you, and I'm speaking to myself, we can sacrifice far more than we are. The title of this message, you probably saw in the bulletin, is Going the Extra 13 Miles, because this is not just about a little bit of extra effort. This is about a new mindset. This is about a new commitment to sacrifice ourselves. And nowhere should that be more true than in our relationship to Christ. So even if you're weary and run down and hurting and discouraged, and I'm not minimizing that, please hear me. The Holy Spirit is our power and our strength. The Word of God is our rock. And the Bible says, stand firm. Hold fast to your conviction. Don't get weary in well-doing now. Come on, don't lose heart. Be strong and courageous. Why does the Bible keep telling us that? Because we need to hear it. You say, well, I'm, I, I don't know. The enemy's really strong and he's battling us. Well, that leads us to the third truth. The third truth is we don't fear the enemy when we're passionately focused on sacrificing ourselves for Christ. We will not fear the enemy when we are passionately focused on sacrificing ourselves for Christ. These three men, now there's a lot we don't see because it's only four verses, but we've got to read into the text. We've got to put ourselves in the situation. We've got to imagine what exactly it was like. So these three men, we know, are going to have to walk right into enemy territory and apparently with no fear because if they were fearful of that, they would never make the trip. They would say, are you kidding me? A cup of water 13 miles away? We're not doing that. We will die. So apparently they don't have any fear because they're driven by the confident strength of their conviction. So while we have a healthy awareness of the enemy's strength, and we should never minimize that, we do not have to be debilitated by the enemy's strength because the Bible says God has not given us what? A spirit of fear and timidity. Instead, we have, tell me, power, love, and a sound mind. Power from the Holy Spirit, love that's modeled by Christ, a sound mind that's driven by the Word of God that we're told to study to show yourself approved. So when the enemy tries to lie and list all the reasons why our spouse should serve us instead of vice versa, we need the Spirit to give us a renewed passion to sacrifice again. And when the enemy tells us that our kids don't need spiritual training and protection, that we should just let them go and have freedom and let society just teach them the lessons. Listen, the Spirit needs to give us fresh discernment about how to teach and guide them. And when the Spirit, when the, the enemy tells us that someone else will do the work of ministry, that we don't need to get involved, we need to step up anyway because the Bible tells us the fields are white and the laborers are what? Few. We need to be in the middle of it. And then when the enemy lies and says, well, culture's too far gone. Come on, Rhodes. Look at, look at what's going on in the country. Our country's a mess. It's too far gone. You know what, Christians? You just need to huddle and hide. Then the Spirit of God is going to give us a fresh heart for people's souls 
and a passionate discipline to imitate Christ and to put off sin and to speak and live with a strong witness and to serve the Lord. Why? Because the Bible says greater is he that is in us than he that's in the world. Is the enemy scary? Absolutely. Is spiritual warfare real? You better bet yourself it is. Is God stronger and is the enemy's defeat already secured? Absolutely. So we need to walk in the power of the Holy Spirit rather than fear. And when we give of ourselves like Christ did for us, it builds up a zealous confidence in us. And it's time now, Christian, listen now, disciple, it's time to show that we are selfless like Jesus was and to give of ourselves and sacrifice ourselves for one another. Now, what happens? Let's finish. What happens when we're on the receiving end of that? What happens when somebody is giving to us and sacrificing for us? How do we best respond and ensure that we're honoring the Lord? Well, look at David's very strange reaction. Look back at the end of verse 16. They brought the water to David. Here, here's the water. <laughs> and here's what David does. Nevertheless, he wouldn't drink it. But he poured it out to the Lord. Wait a minute. And he said, Lord, far be it from me that I should do this. I'm not going to drink the blood of the men who went in jeopardy of their lives. And he wouldn't drink it. David's response is not one of entitlement. It's humility and self-denial. Now, on first glance, every time I've ever read this passage, my gut says, what a waste. What a waste to pour out the water that they just went after all that effort. And you got to wonder, in the initial reaction, what these poor guys are thinking. Are you kidding me? We just risked our lives to go get that water. You said you wanted it. We thought we were doing the right thing. We walked 13 miles that way and 13 miles back. And let me tell you, it was not easy. David, and you're not going to drink it? Like, we, we thought maybe we were even getting, you know, a pat on the back and maybe a promotion. Isn't it amazing how quickly our mind goes back to ourselves? David could do whatever he wanted with that water. He didn't tell them to go get it. They did it on their own. So he can pour it out without any recourse. But our mind says, no, 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 I sacrificed so I get some credit. Never serve another person thinking, all right, what do I get back? Because that's not really humil uh, humble service. That's, that's a selfish plan to get somebody to do back for you. This is why marriages fail. Marriages fail because well, I'm going to sacrifice my wife. That means she's got to sacrifice back for me. Nope, it's not the way it works. And this is an area where the enemy really attacks us without us maybe being fully aware of the danger of it. They, they caught this water and they walk back and David doesn't even take a sip. Why? Well, we don't know if David felt bad that they had gone to all this effort without him really asking for it. Maybe, maybe he doesn't want somebody to do that in the future. But I don't, I don't believe that's what it is. I really believe this was David's humility. Not a false humility. Not, oh, well, that was really nice, but I can't drink that because nobody else got it. So here you go. That, that's not what David's doing. He is pouring out the water 
as an act of brokenness. He's deflecting back to the Lord. Listen, when somebody does something very, very gracious to you, how do you respond? Let me give you an example that's going to irritate you, and and it's all you're going to think about for the next three minutes that I'm preaching and then done. My brother-in-law just retired. And at his retirement party, he works for a very big energy firm. At his retirement party, his partner said, we're going to give you a skybox to the Super Bowl. So he calls me on a Sunday night a couple weeks ago and says, would you like to go to the Super Bowl? I said, excuse me? He said, I'd like to invite you and Jacob and Matt to go to the Super Bowl, and I'll fly you down, put you up, and we'll be in a skybox. I'm like, what? When somebody does something like that for you, how do you even respond? Now do I go, well, it's about time you called. Or do I say, I'm overwhelmed. I don't know how to thank you enough for that. Now transfer that concept, now that I got your attention. Now transfer that concept to the spiritual realm. When God is so gracious to us, and he gives us a gift that is so unimaginable. I mean, the Super Bowl, that's, that's, you know, once in a lifetime, right? Christ's sacrifice is eternal. God himself enters into creation, lives out the law with perfection, takes on the devil, defeats him, takes my sin to the cross, dies for me, and then rises again, and now says, if you trust me, you're saved for eternity, and all your sin's gone, all the penalties paid. How am I going to respond to that? Well, yeah, of course. Or, my life's yours. My life's yours. I I mean, how could I not sacrifice back? Am I going to respond with indifference and coldness and worldliness, and well, thank you, God, for your gift, and I'm so glad I've got my insurance to go to heaven. Now I'm going to do whatever I want. Is that how we're going to live? Or are we going to fall on our faces before the Lord and say, thank you. I I don't know what to say. Thank you. David takes the water, and, and he just looks at these guys like, you did that for me? Like, you walked 26 miles through enemy territory for me to give me the water that I just kind of said, boy, it'd be nice to have a drink from that well. I can't beat that. And he pours it out. This is a drink offering. In the Old Testament, the drink offering was when they would pour out wine as a sacrifice to the Lord. And David says, I'm going to pour this out as a drink offering. That's what Jesus did. Jesus went into enemy territory. He fought an unthinkable battle. And not only did he risk his life, but he gave his life. And the Bible says he was poured out as a drink offering for us. And his blood was the proof. So what is the measure? I'm done. What's the measure and proof of our sacrifice to the Lord and to each other? The mighty men didn't hesitate. They didn't have regret. Even when David poured it out, we don't see anything in the text where they're 
they're crying out, what in the world are you doing? They understood. They had sacrificed because they loved the Lord, and they loved someone more than themselves. So listen, what will you and I do this week to show that kind of love? What will you and I do this week to show that kind of love to the Lord and that kind of love to other people? Will we go to the 13th mile to sacrifice for somebody else? Let's close our eyes. I want to appeal to you. You've listened so well. I want to, I want to appeal to you just very specifically. I believe in the time we've been studying that the Holy Spirit has placed very clear examples on your heart of the ways that you can sacrifice in a fresh way to the Lord and the ways that you can sacrifice in a fresh way to those around you. Now he's calling you to act. How can you serve Christ this week? I don't mean why I came to church. And I read my Bible a couple times. I mean, how can you sacrifice yourself to Christ? How can you deny yourself in ways that you never have before? You've held back, but, but now you understand it. I've got to give everything to him. I've got to give my full faith to him. I've got to give my desires to him. I've got to give my old life to him. Lord, everything's yours. It's, it's all yours. How are you going to serve others in a new way this week? Your spouse. Maybe you've got tension with your spouse right now. Maybe your spouse has hurt you. Maybe it's an ex-spouse. How are you going to pray for them? Your parents, your children, even in this body. How are we going to show love for other people? You say, well, you don't understand. No, I don't understand, but it doesn't matter if I understand. It only matters what we're called to do. How are we going to be sacrificial? How are we going to serve this week? Just for a moment, just acknowledge to the Lord, Lord, I hear you. I, I hear you. I'm convicted. I get it. And then I want to encourage you. And I want you to encourage me. We need to commit ourselves to him in a fresh way. Right now. Starts right now. Doesn't start tomorrow. Starts right now.